Today, we have a wonderful guest with us. We are in disagreement over some very fundamental issues relating to theology and how we understand the scriptures, but it is important to me to have guests from all sorts of different opinions on theology and the scriptures. So, enjoy today's show. Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are going to take a look at womanism with Dr. Mitzi Smith, who's professor of New Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary, just outside of Atlanta, and is the author of Womanist, Sass, and Talkback, Social Justice, Injustice, Intersectionality, and Biblical Interpretation, published in 2018, and editor and contributor Uh, I Found God in Me, a Womanist Biblical Hermeneutics Reader, published in 2015, both books by Whiff and Stock. So, Dr. Smith, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for the invitation. Glad to be here. All right. Dennis. I'm sorry. Dennis, Kevin. Actually, some people think I look like Kevin Bacon, so anything works. Uh, so let's start with your, your personal background in terms of like, church background, theological background that give the um, viewers some understanding of where you're coming from. Yes. Uh, so I was raised uh, by my mother and, and uh, with my siblings in Columbus, Ohio, the Midwest. My mother uh, was raised in the South and she grew up Methodist in the Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, so I first um, learned about God or became uh, became familiar with God through my mother. And she remains, she is deceased now, but she remains for me uh, the epitome next to Jesus <laughs> of what it means to be a Christian. Because she just, she just loved people Um and just uh, believed in treating people, all people, like human beings. And so I kind of strive to be like her in many ways. Uh, so, but my mother was um, confined to a wheelchair by the time I was about maybe nine or ten. Um, so she couldn't take us to church, but there was a Presbyterian mission uh, that would come through our neighborhood in the projects and invite uh, us to go to church. And so the times we would, we took the uh, on Sunday the uh, bus to Calvary Chapel uh, Mission Church uh, in Columbus, Ohio. And then later, my mom joined the Seventh Day Adventist Church, and um, I followed her maybe a year later. But before that, she made us go to church on Sunday and Saturday until we made our decision. Uh, and so, but currently I am ordained in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. To, but to be honest, I'd rather be non-denominational. Okay. Okay. Okay, good. And now, um, if you could give us some background on womanist thought, how it started, and how it um, got incorporated into Christian theology, um, so and some some of the key people in the movement. Yes. Yeah, so, womanist. Um, uh, the term womanist was coined by Alice Walker. Uh, she first mentions it in a 1979 essay uh, called "Things." fall apart, the things coming apart. Uh, and then she 
provides a more um, expansive definition in her book, In Our Mother's Gardens. And that was 1983. Um, and so the term comes out of the Black community. It, not that other communities uh, uh, may have used the term, but you acting womanish, right? Which mothers would say to young daughters who were bold, audacious, talkative, um, yes, and want to know uh, everything uh, there is to know. Uh, so you're acting womanish. So it was a term that came out of our, our community, and she goes on to um, describe uh, womanism or womanist as one who is um, uh, comes in different colors. She does physical experience in terms of what we do and so forth, uh, that we are uh, coming all kinds of colors, um, that we are um, um, uh, in the struggle for freedom, like Harriet Tubman, you know, I'm walking to freedom and I'm taking a bunch of children with me. Uh, so a, a freedom focus, uh, liberation focus. Uh, but she also makes room for women who are um, uh, non-binary or who are not heterosexual, you know, I happen to be heterosexual, but she makes room for women who are not. Uh, speaking of women, uh, a womanist can be a woman as well who loves men and also loves, uh, loves, uh, women sexually and non-sexually. And, and that's, that's a part of the definition. Some conservative, more conservative persons, uh, would probably may have a problem with. So it's sort of an ideal, an ideal, uh, description of what, uh, or prescription of what a womanist is and I- ideals we attempt to live into. All right. Uh, and so then you, as far as the church, then how did that? Yes. Start? Oh, the church. Yes. So, so Katie Geneva Cannon, Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon, who is now deceased, uh, uh, as a womanist, uh, African American woman ethicist. Right, trained as an ethicist in the academy, first woman ordained, black woman ordained in the Presbyterian Church. Uh, she she appropriated Alice Walker's term um, in the eighties as well and brought it into the religious academy. Um, women, uh, black women needed, at least some black women felt that we needed a term that came out of our communities, a term, uh, which, uh, that we would choose to define ourselves rather than choosing feminists. And, uh, given also the history of feminism, rarely, if ever, that's probably still the case, uh, dealing with the issue of race. And for me, I'd rather be uh, call, call myself a womanist as well, not only because it comes out of our community and the way it is defined, but also I hate to think of myself as a feminist who has to append the word black to it, black feminist. Uh, now, there are black feminists. I don't fault them for choosing that, but many of us prefer uh, to name ourselves uh, using a name that has come out of our community. So Katie Geneva Canna, an ethicist, started uh, that and a bunch of uh, black women, uh, I'm really small in numbers, but those in the academy, 
um, yeah, said, yes, we need, this is what we need to do. But she started that movement. Uh, you have the theologians, uh, black women theologians following suit, uh, like Kelly Brown Douglas. She's a well-known uh, person still living. Um, Dolores Williams, she recently died. Uh, Jack Willen Grant. Um, and so now you have womanist, uh, uh, Dr. Benita Weems, uh, he, first Hebrew Bible scholar, black woman. Um, uh, you have women in Africa as well who identify as womanists. And you have women outside of religion, of course, but we're talking about religion, yes. All right, great. And so why would you say womanism is necessary? Hadn't uh, black theology and feminism and liberation theology covered all the bases? Uh, absolutely not. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think so. So uh, womanists like Kelly Brown Douglas and Dolores Williams were the first to actually critique James Cone, who's known as the father of black theology, uh, for um, putting forth a theology that uh, that claim to speak for all black people. He said, no, black women's experiences are different from those of black men. And not that every black man or every black woman's experiences are the same, but we are, we definitely, definitely experience sexism and sexism, not only from outside the community, but from black men. And so our experiences are different, right? You cannot claim black theology uh, as, uh, as a theology constructed by men uh, from a male's perspective as covering or also representing the lives of black women. And with feminism, the problem is too often the emphasis is on uh, women as if all women are alike and as if black women don't also deal with racism. Uh, feminism very often does not uh, deal with or is concerned with racism, but just with uh, gender and sexism. Okay. And um, so is there a place for conservative evangelical black women in womanism or are those two mutually exclusive? Uh, so that's, that's an interesting question. You know, I would say that, you know, a person can name themselves um, any way they choose. There will be liberal black women, uh, so-called liberal or progressive black women who may not choose to call themselves womanists, may prefer black feminists or some other term, and, there, and that is indeed the case. Um, it, it would depend. Uh, I, I would say there probably are some more conservative-leaning evangelical women who may call themselves womanists, but they may reject part of Alice Walker's definition. Uh, uh, so it would be up to the woman. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm sure you've come across this many times. I mean, it's true of black theology and feminism and liberation theology, but many more uh, conservative critics would say you are elevating your own experience above that of Scripture. The scripture has authority, not your own experience. They would accuse you of eisegesis rather than exegesis. You're reading in what you want to into Scripture. Mm -hmm. So how would you address that? Yes, so just as a biblical scholar, um, a long time ago, I've been teaching about, 90, about 17 years now, 
but this a uh, long time ago, I decided that there, that this uh, this notion of exegesis versus eisegesis is a, a false dichotomy. Uh, mm-hmm. We all bring who we are, right? Whether we name it or not, whether we uh, whether we're explicit about it or not, we all bring our context, and we all have context. All human beings have context. Uh, we bring um, uh, the things that form us, the culture that form us, uh, to a reading of a text. We're all reading something in, even if, if it is uh, the level uh, of literacy that we have, we bring that to a reading of a text. Um so uh, I was I was just today we had our first chapel uh, at uh, for our school today and my colleague who's a white male uh, homiletician Jake Myers spoke uh, gave the sermon and I was uh, you know very happy to hear him say that he didn't believe in exegesis versus eisegesis uh, so mm. we share that in common <laughs> he's a white male. And so I think if you're o- if you're open and I think uh, honest about it, that th- that is a false dichotomy. There's no there's no way of using a tool and not and not in some way bringing who you are, how you've been shaped theologically, culturally, and so forth to a reading of the text, even if you don't name it. How can white men uh, relate to womanist thought? Yeah, so I, I think the best person to ask that is white man. <laughs> <laughs> but let me say, you know, you you know, I write, uh, I, I write uh, the books I write because they uh, are the books I need in the classroom because I believe I have um, something to say to my to my community or about my community uh, that should be of interest. That I hope. And, and and I'll be happy if they are of interest to others, but you never know, right? I remember when I worked when Woman of Sass came out, one of the first persons to um to say something to me about that book was a middle class middle aged white male on Twitter who said how that book changed his life. Hmm. Right? Woman of Sass, you know, uh, that centers black women, our experiences, black communities. But it's also very human because even though uh, this is the thing we need, we are human beings and are things that we may not name the same, but that we have in common, right? People across race and ethnicity are poor, <laughs> right? People across race and ethnicity are impacted by high water, the cost of high water, the privatization of, of water, right? And and when I read this Samaritan woman, I am uh, reading that in dialogue with and through the lens of the privatization of water, the high cost of the water, uh, the inability to get good, clean water, uh, and so forth, with, uh, which impacts not just Black women, uh, it impacts poor people across race, gender, sexuality, and so forth. And so, uh, you know, for years before there was African American interpretation or Black theology or womanist theology, primarily uh, because the scholars were primarily white and male, were writing. But how, why is it that Black? people read those things because somehow they saw something human, something that was of interest to them, right? Uh, And so it should be the same way. If we look at each other as human beings, this person's just writing overtly. I'm writing overtly 
whereas my white male, uh, a white male colleague is writing and not stating, not identifying himself, not identifying his culture, not identifying what always what motivates him, but often it is out of his own culture. But there's also something very human, right? Uh, because we are human beings uh, about whatever we talk about. And and so uh, if if we can see uh, uh, the, the 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 foundational um, humanness uh, in what we all each are doing, I think that uh, we will find benefit uh, in 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 womanist work, just like black people have found benefit in writings by primarily by white males and white women. All righty. Well, let's uh, dive into your books then. Uh, so in I Found God in Me, uh, you wrote a chapter, The Womanist Biblical Scholar as Prophetess, Iconoclast, and Activist. So you are a New Testament scholar. So um, explain to us what's going on there. Yes. So uh, number one, the, the, the essays in that section, most of them except mine, uh, in that section of the book, the first section were uh, written by uh, written some time ago. They are reprints, and I I was I wanted to write about you know well, what do I have to say <laughs> as someone new to womanist, fairly new compared to the other people in section one to womanist interpretation, uh, and as a womanist scholar, right? And the need for us to be prophetic in the sense of uh, speaking truth uh, to power in the sense of privileging justice, which we believe we, we serve a God who uh, is very much interested in and focused on uh, injustice or uh, bringing about justice in the world and among human beings. Um, about sometimes, you know, those icons that we have been, uh, whether they're intellectual, <laughs> theoretical, or so forth, icons that can be oppressive, um, you know, breaking up or de de uh, deconstructing some of those things, uh, for example, the notion of the Great Commission. Uh, and 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 I see myself as activists uh, through my work. Uh, every womanist would not see themselves this way, but I see myself as activists in that I am trying to not only raise my own consciousness when I write about injustice in the world, uh, but the uh, raise the consciousness of my readers about injustice in the world in which we live, but also in the biblical text. All right. And then in the same volume, you also discussed the New Testament's binary portrayal of women as virgins and whores. So it's a provocative approach um, all the way from Matthew to Revelation. Mm -hmm. So what's significant there in your interpretation? Yeah, you know, and again, I'm at the the things that um, ideas and things that are oppressive, and we do know that the Bible is. We most, most of us admit very patriarchal, uh, androcentric. That means concerned with um, uh, centering men, uh, men's uh, constructions of women. And we do see this from beginning and end. This notion that a woman is either a virgin or a whore, nothing in between. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, and so virgins uh, in the beginning with the Hebrew Bible are supposed to become wives. And you see this whole notion that, it, you know, the, uh, the pro- they're the property of their, uh, uh, their fathers until they're married and they become the property of their husbands. But in order for that property, that human property to be passed on uh, of value to a man, he actually has to be a virgin. And supposedly you, you know this on the wedding night when the, when, uh, when, when she supposedly bleeds, which is a construction as well, right? I imagine a lot of people were killing goats and putting blood on sheets. Uh, so, um, and when we think about even in our, you know, uh, society, more civil, more, um, um, uh, advanced society, we know that, uh, uh, Jessica Valenti wrote a book about, uh, the purity myth. Uh, we know there's no such thing as a medical uh, a definition of virginity, but it was something constructed in women and men over the years. We we have a hard time even thinking differently. And a woman can be can be considered a whore, uh, particularly in our society, just by rejecting the advances of a man, but just by rejecting the cat calls as she walks down the street and so forth, right? Uh, uh, She can be called out her name and treated uh, like she is not a lady or even a human being. And so I'm saying we need to dissent Right. I like this. I like this term. I think about the, the Supreme Court and in, in the history of people who have dissented in the, in the name of justice. But we, we have to dissent even when those constructions uh, are those binaries are um, um, uh, inscribed in our sacred texts. All right. So. Um, OK, let's go ahead. and The, the Great Commission then. Is interesting also what you do with that. So you talk about uh, the teaching emphasized in the Great Commission, but you also want to put an emphasis on social justice there. Mm-hmm. So how how's a good way to rethink it or understand the Great Commission in the first place? Or even the naming of it, calling it the Great Commission. Yes, yes, that's what we get at first. I, you know, and and, and I, I decided to write that essay because I was in a classroom and we were studying, we we're beginning to study the Gospel of Matthew. And I asked students, you know, what do you know about Matthew, you know, uh, coming into this class? And the only thing I heard was Great Commission. I'm like, oh, okay, you never read it for yourself, it seems like, right? Great Commission. You know, a lot of tradition gets passed on that we never question. We just repeat it. We just repeat it. And so and so people just see it. And even inscribed in the Bible are these titles. Right. Uh, in most Bibles, you do get a title, not in all of them, the Great Commission when you get to Matthew 28. Right. Uh, but the Bible itself does not name it that. Right. Uh, it has been named that and inscribed in the Bible. And so even the title uh, guides you or circumscribes, limits the way you are. Uh, you are taught to read that text. Right. As it, it that is the that is the. Um, that is, um, uh, what that, that is in a sense, our mission. That is the mission of Christians is to engage in this great commission, which is uh, teaching in a sense of the notion that some, some group, uh, one group is better equipped to teach another group or the other group is in, is, is, uh, is deficient when it comes to knowledge or relationship with God. Uh, but, um, but, not, but the Matthew does not name 
that te- that text in in Matthew twenty eight, go ye therefore into and uh, this King King James English, go ye therefore into all the earth and and teach right other nations. Uh, but what is named? Um, in the Bible as great, the two greatest commandments is loving God, loving self as we love our neighbor, right? Uh, which is not a, a rhetorical task. It is not a, a, a it, it is something that requires action toward or relationship, being in relationship to, uh, with God, with, uh, having a good relationship with ourselves and with other human beings, right? Valuing other human beings. And, and I, I, I see the Jesus in, in Matthew. You can, really can't separate, uh, what he teaches from what he does, right? And to me, this whole notion of a great commission, because it is historically founded on the notion of going and taking a, a gospel to people who missionaries and the crown, the emperor, the king, and so forth, uh, considered inferior. Right. And so I said, we need to, you know, we need to rethink that, right? That uh, to teach uh, that, first of all, we can learn something from each other. Uh, as human beings, and that God uh, can, uh, people have relationship with God, right, uh, long before the Bible existed, um, and 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 beyond the Bible, right? Uh, Christians, you know, like to see the Bible, and we tend to see the Bible as providing a model in the life of Jesus, but it, it matters how we read that that story, how we read the stories of Jesus, how we see them, and then how we see other human beings in relation to that. And we figure, okay, so we, we've known, we know the stories, we entered into a pool, so who better to teach another person <laughs> how to be in relation to God when perhaps we can learn, uh, uh, not perhaps, but certainly we can learn something from one another. And it's more important how we treat one another. Okay, but isn't there something that the disciple of Christ has, the teachings of Christ, um, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the gospel itself, that Christ commissions us not just to teach but to make disciples? Yes, absolutely, we're to be humble and learn from the people we interact with wherever we go. But there isn't, isn't there something unique about the deposit that we have from Christ? So, yeah, so that's an interesting question. We like to say that, that just because uh, we have become Christians and have been taught, right, a certain way to read the Bible, which many of us don't agree on, right? <laughs> um, um, right? And, and we have different interpretations. Uh, so which one do we take anyway? Uh, so that, therefore, because we have been indoctrinated, right, about the Bible and how we should read it. Therefore, that indoctrination is the truth that we should take to other people, as if there is no truth from God in those other people, and as if the only way to get truth from God is through our indoctrination and through the text. Okay. Yeah, that's always going to be a controversial topic. Yes, yes, yes. For sure. 
All righty. So in Womanist Sass and Talkback, um, you talk about there's an unexpected connection with the story of the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4 with the, which you already talked about before briefly, the, the water crisis in terms of having safe, affordable water. And so um, if you could, and just those terms, Womanist Sass and Talkback, if you could mention what you're talking about there getting in the title before you even get into the John passage. Yeah, so a woman is sass and talk back. That came to me uh, when uh, Sandra Bland, you know, was in, uh, uh, died as a result or um, in consequence of a traffic stop for supposedly not um, signaling for turning lanes as if that should be a death sentence. But... Um, uh, that really um, impacted uh, my life. And I heard, you know, people post different things across race and gender. Oh, she should have kept her mouth shut. Okay, so that, uh, that uh, she should die because uh, she knew her rights and she, you know, tried to voice her rights. Um, and, and so, you know, I wanted to first talk about her story in conversation uh, with the woman who talked back to Jesus, the Syrophoenician woman, in Mark's version, not Matthew's version of the story. Um, and and think about— And we'll get to that story, too. Yes, okay. So, yes. And so uh, the ways that we have—that sometimes the only thing you have, and particularly poor— particularly poor uh, black women and men, particularly poor women, uh, period, or marginalized people, right? Sometimes the only thing you have uh, uh, is your voice, right? Uh, and, and, and and not even always your voice, your vote, because, you know, uh, throughout the years that has been either denied or been um, uh, you face violence by casting your vote or or whatever, and 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 some are trying to roll us back to those days. But our voice, right, is important. It's something God has given to us, and so um, we have uh, the right, and sometimes very necessary, to talk back uh, to uh, oppressive powers uh, and so forth, whether they are in the biblical text or outside the biblical text. Okay, good. And so what happens in John 4 then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in John 4, I am talking back, and, and and I like to place in dialogue contemporary injustice issues, issues of injustice, and a reading of the text, of a, of a biblical text. And it doesn't mean that I'm, I never uh, ignore the, his, the historical context of the sacred text. It's, I think context needs always to be considered. And I like reading closely and critically biblical texts, but in conversation with current justice issues, we serve a living God who is not fossilized in a text, a text that we must continually interpret, right? But is above, beyond, more than, because if God is to be equated with the text, then what we have then is an idol. Uh, but God is so much more. God is not human, and God is not human-made. That's why Stephen was stoned, right? He said, God does not live in, ha- in, in, in houses made with human hands. I'm like, wait a minute, you're talking about the temple. <laughs> <laughs> and he's stoned. Uh, and so, um, 
Yes. And so that's what I do is I place, uh, I lived in Detroit at the time, water, not only did they have the Flint water crisis, which has taken places in many cities throughout the U.S., but not only did they have the Flint water crisis, but they also had, which a lot of people did not hear about, was the water shutoffs. People who owe as little as $150 a month, perhaps, but, but, but living in poverty and couldn't pay that bill, water was, sh- was shut off. And um, but huge corporations who had hundreds of thousand dollars in bills, their water bills were not shut off. So humane. Mm. And all of this is attached to the privatization of water. And so I placed that um, um, that uh, injustice in conversation with the woman at the well, which caused me to focus on the water. Right. The water. What is Jesus saying about the water? What does he mean by I give you living water and went to the Hebrew Bible? What is uh, living water in the Hebrew Bible? It's free flowing water from a natural source. Right. Which she did not uh, have access to. But what Rome, the Roman Empire, had created access to to uh, through uh, particularly the wealthy. Uh, uh, through it, the building of the water aqueducts and the putting of water spigots in the house of the wealthy, right? And how that ingratiated Caesar uh, to the people, um, uh, which causes us also to look at Jesus' statement, I can give you living water, as subversive to oppressive empire. And not that empire can be in some ways, you know, we always demonize these binaries. Empire can be, can have some good and empire can have some bad. You know, they allow people, if you, you can get as much free water as you want as long as you can carry it, right? Uh, that's not happening, you know, in, in our context <laughs> uh, so much in some places. Uh, so um, it's not free. You can have as much you want, but it's not free. Um, and, and so, yes, and so that's how I read uh, that story. That's how I um, um, I read a text a lot. Uh, because we serve a living God who is very much interested in our lives, uh, that I think it's very important for us to become aware of what's going on in the world and read in conversation with sacred texts. All righty. And so the story appears in Mark 7 and Matthew 15, the story of the Syrophoenician woman or the Canaanite woman Mm -hmm. uh, who comes to Jesus to get him to heal her daughter. And so she asks three times and he finally heals her daughter. So um, what do you do with that? Your chapter is the womanist lens of intersectionality and intercontextuality. How do you put all that together? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I, I prefer Mark's version. Of course, scholars think that Mark was the first version, right? But I prefer Mark's version because, one, uh, there is not this, what I see as, which I'll be writing about in another article, uh, uh, there's not this what I see as a weaponization of faith, right? Uh, but what he does say is that it was her logos, her word, right? That uh, because of her word, her, she can go home and her daughter is whole. Which re- reminds me of that God puts power, uh, the image of God. We have a part of the image of God and access to uh, the spirit, the power of God's spirit, each of us, right? 
Uh, and so it made sense for me that Jesus was, you know, uh, he is a, a very human, very human in Mark, right? And uh, we can count the many ways that he is human. Um, um, and uh, he is shaped by his Jewish upbringing, which prioritized Judaism, right? And I believe that comes through, but she pushes back. Because she has heard people from her region, we see earlier in Mark, have experienced healing from him. And healing was not uh, a new phenomenon with Jesus in that context. But, you know, but, but he is this healer who has, who, who has been proven to be a healer. People have come back uh, to where she lives. And, uh, and so she finds out she's there and says, well, maybe he can heal my daughter. But, but what it is, though, that he recognizes the power in her word, in her voice, and says, because of your word, your daughter is healed, right? And that perhaps God has he seen her. And this is, you know, this is, um, I, don't, I don't want to harmonize these, but I love uh, the picture of Jesus in the Gospel of John, uh, where uh, Jesus says, uh, to his followers, disciples, that you would do greater things than I did. Right? You would do greater things than I did. Uh, when the spirit, has, you know, when you, when the, the comforter, the advocate, whatever arrives, however we see that. Um, uh, uh, it, which, which is so powerful to me, right? That we have access to same power Jesus had. He is saying, John's Jesus, and can do greater and so we, we, we forget about the fact that, you know, God created us, according to the Genesis story, in God's image and, 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 and gave us power, uh, which, you know, which does not have to be mediated power. All right. But um, wouldn't some people accuse you of saying that Jesus is being xenophobic then in originally um, withholding the blessing, healing from her? Um, sure, sure. And I would, I would, I would say he's not beyond that. <laughs> I mean, he's not beyond that. No, he's human. Okay. To be yeah, human we... is to be imperfect. To be human is to be not God. And I know we have a long tradition of, right? It is a tradition of a church um, uh, councils who decided that Jesus is both human and God. And so we tend to read the Gospels through that, ignoring his humanity and not coming to, to terms, having difficult terms coming to terms with Jesus' humanity, right? Uh, but, you know, I, you know, I think, you know, tradition, uh, tradition is not is something that is started and can be looked at differently, can be re-looked at. Tradition, you know, tradition is something we pass on. Uh, tradition is not the same as God. And so I think we need to, in some ways, rethink, and that tradition was also, we never, we never even go back to think about how that tradition came to be uh, by murdering those who disagreed. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we go. Okay, we can go a long, yeah, a long yeah, ways yeah. with this one. It'd be a whole different video, whole different right, interview. Right. Okay. So, and uh, in the book of Acts, then you look at the uh, these parallels, um, innovative parallel between the Ethiopian eunuch with the Alexandrian um, Apollos. So we even have some alliteration there, um, but. 
you talk about uh, the epistemology, pedagogy, and subordinated other. Okay, so this is fascinating. Tell us what you do here. Yeah, so, you know, reading through, you know, I teach, my first book was on the Acts of the Apostles, and I teach it uh, quite often. And each time I teach, you know, I, I try to remain open to seeing what I may not have seen before. I think we all should do that. We maintain a, a, what I call a hermeneutical humility. Right. Uh, uh, We can change our minds. We can see something different. We can see something newly. And so just reading through and thinking about the Roman Empire. Right. And its impact and and looking at, okay, the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, sometimes we feel all has been written. No, we all bring something uh, different to a reading of a text. Right. And if we're open, you know, I think it, it could be very fascinating, you know, rereading and rereading these biblical texts. But anyway, so we see the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, and of course, there's this orchestrated um, encounter between him and Philip, uh, and it's on the out. It's between. It's on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's not in Jerusalem. He has been there, uh, and Philip has been pushed out of because of um, um, persecution. Uh, it seems only perhaps of Philip's group because the twelve they stayed there according to Acts in Jerusalem, un- unmolested, and so uh, they meet. Um, uh, uh, orchestrated by the spirit and the angel, uh, but on the outskirts, in the margins, right? And, and he is taught. Now, in another essay, after the one you read in Woman of Sex, I also take a diff- a little bit different take on their meeting, right? And when I think about uh, his teaching and the crucifixion of Jesus, is that you have this encounter not only in the margins of one teaching the other, but you also have two people who have been traumatized, right? Philip has been traumatized by the uh, persecution, and Philip has been traumatized by castration, right? Probably forcefully castrated. And these two You mean the eunuch? Yes, the eunuch. These yeah. two traumatized people meet, because I am asking in another essay, um, where did we get this uh, bringing together, this intersection of uh, the crucified Christ and silence, right? And all the cruci- and it, it is not in the Gospels. It is in this act story, right? Because uh, these two people have been traumatized. And it's interesting that Philip, uh, that he's reading this story of the suffering servant in Isaiah, uh, who, who the, te- the text he's reading say he, he, he suffered silently, basically, right? And Philip mm-hmm. comes alongside and the unit wants to know, well, well, who is he talking about? Who is this person? And Philip says it's Jesus, right? So it's interesting that this traumatized man, Philip, uh, depicts Jesus, uh, you know, because Philip has to flee, you know, he can't stay there. And he has, in a sense, suffered in silence. And so that he under, that he uh, interprets this text, perhaps not just, I would maybe tweak it a little bit since this, the, the first reading of it, and not, not just in the context of his own life, in a sense, but that of the eunuch as well. Bring, seeing this text, as a story of Jesus, right? Which is also, in a sense, the story of each of them. I think that's that's very powerful. But I also saw earlier, you know, in the womanist text, you're talking about that there's something similar about the Apollo story in Acts and this story of Philip. Um, of course, uh, in the Apollo story, 
Um, it is Priscilla. Normally her name is mentioned first, Prisca or Priscilla, and her husband Apollos, who take um, uh, Aquila, who take Apollos aside and teach him, which is also just 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 so fascinating because the, the text goes out of the way to say how eloquent he is, how much he knows the scriptures so accurately, and then they throw in this thing about the way of God, right? Which is a new phrase. And so I find it interesting that they take him aside, uh, a similar taking aside, right? And a sort of winning over of these two uh, characters. Priscilla and Aquila attempt made us like Paul, but nowhere in that story with Paul, when Paul takes them with him, do, does he allow them to teach or preach? But they have this opportunity on the side in the margins, right? Uh, and the relationship, what made these two people represent in terms of Rome, right? Uh, Ethiopia was uh, the eunuch, uh, presumably goes back home, right? And uh, we know the history of this with the oldest uh, com Christian communities uh, in Ethiopia and Africa. But anyway, uh, uh, Rome never completely conquered Ethiopia. It's Acts trying to tell us something, right? Rome never completely conquered Ethiopia, but it did conquer Egypt. And so I wonder if also these two stories are as much also about uh, the relationship of this movement to the Roman Empire, right? And, 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 and these two characters being also in some ways um, uh, symbolic also of empire in the conquering and in the conquering, not physically conquering, but you know, spiritual uh, empire. All right, but um, but your point is then that the Ethiopian is the subordinate other. Yes, and so is he is subordinate other, uh, and so is Philip. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, both of them get subordinated. Yes. All right, and in Second Kings, this is one of the most interesting ones. Uh, Second Kings two. There's the story of Elisha cursing the boys because they are saying "Go on up, Baldy," treating him disrespectfully. So he curses them, and before you know it, two uh, mother bears come out and maul forty-two boys. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and then you you connect this to police brutality. Mm -hmm. So, how do you put this all together here? Yeah, so I wanted to talk about, you know, normally I'm not uh, necessarily thinking of, uh, well, I guess it varies, but sometimes I'm not thinking of the text first, but I'm thinking of the justice issue I want to talk about. And what text allows me to put those two in conversation, right? And so in this case, I remember, you know, growing up reading this story all the time, uh, this story, the cushions of the boys, and, you know, and of course the boys are wrong. They deserve what they got. You know, that's the way we read it, right? Uh, but, um, uh, for, 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 you know, if, if every kid <laughs> ended up this way for being disrespectful toward an authority figure, we might not have any children. <laughs> there may not be any children around. Uh, but we buy into this notion because it's in a sacred text, right? Oh, yes, that was okay. That, that, you know. But I, what I'm saying is that it is, in both cases, is very much about authority, right? And how authority, in a sense, I don't think I used this word in the, in the, in the, um, in my analysis, 
But authority, in a sense, almost gets deified, right, when it's connected to prophets, right? And I place this in the context of the struggles that are going on between the northern and southern kingdom and how this has a part to play in uh, why uh, we have this story about uh, this cursing of the boy just by, for teasing a man of God, right? And as if because this person is a man of God, then any of this of slightest, you have to be very thin-skinned man of God, right? <laughs> but any slightest, right? But we call disrespect or dishonor, whatever, um, uh, should result in such a horrific uh, mauling of these boys, right? And 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 we, you know, we've we've carried those ideas on. You know, I remember growing up, right? Oh, you never touch not. You know, was usually uh, 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 taught through the phrase "touch not my anointed and do them no harm," right? And so, one thing you can't talk about is the man of God. I don't care how horrifically the man of God may be acting uh, themselves, right? That you you don't say anything about that person, and uh, or or you bring the wrath of God down on you. But but you know, I'm saying that we need to question that whole idea, right? Is God that thin skinned? I hope not. Right? Yes. <laughs> Okay, and then how do you tie it more specifically to police brutality? Yes, talking about authority, right? It is uh, a lot of times, and we see this lately with the the, the the Tyree Nichols case, right? I believe it is all about, it becomes about authority, right? These ideas of who is authority. As if, for example, uh, the police are not human, right? That they're not capable of making mistakes and they're not, capable of having biases, or if they do, it doesn't matter because they are authority figures in the community, right? That they can do anything, right? And people can have relationships, communities, particularly communities of color, can have relationships with such authority figures that are oppressive, uh, but uh, it's okay because those are authority figures, Right, so I'm I'm questioning the whole um, uh, idea of giving absolute authority to human beings to do whatever they want to other human beings. They end up in death and violence. Right. Right, and it is often the case where police brutality takes place is that there is an actual crime being committed. There is an actual offense going on, but well, but uh, then the police drastically overreact and that that would be another tie to the story the well, kids were disrespectful uh, I, in the story but you're saying obviously there's an overreaction in terms of the bears. yeah I, I wouldn't say it's always a natural a, a crime taking place right right in some uh, cases uh, yes 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 of course does every crime uh, uh, require a death sentence right right, uh, right. regardless and then there are many crimes uh communities that are not policed in the same way, right? Uh, I mean, for example, uh, statistics show that there are more white people and perhaps middle-class white people involved in drugs and drug trade, but their communities are not policed in the same way. So they are not being arrested or harassed and so forth in the same rate. And so you're not going to find that kind of violence toward their, their communities, right? Whereas poor communities and poor communities of colors are easy targets, right? Easy targets. 
I was just sharing um, a, a quote. Uh, there's a quote by, I believe it was Nixon's um, uh, domestic affairs assistant or something. I can't remember his name right now, but I just posted the other day on, on Instagram where he quote, you know, how they started the war on drugs. And they said, you know, how they targeted communities of color. And they said, we all knew that it wasn't true, but we did it anyway. Mm. You know, and that continues. And so, uh, yes, uh, but uh, and and there's statistics that show, for example, in other crimes that uh, minorities and black folks aren't aren't the greatest perpetrators of uh, in, in numbers of shoplifting, but they're the most ones charged, right? And so forth. And we can go on and on about crimes. And also, there's um, there are there are things that are made uh, uh, are criminalized, right? Um, uh, 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 that make make certain people. Um, uh, let me see how I want to put this. Uh, for example, it, uh, an easy example is when we go back to the um, era of Jim Crow, right? Where it was criminal for a black person to drink out of, to enter certain establishments, to go um uh, to drink out water fountains marked for by white people it was criminal and you know you could end up in a in a in a in a chain gang in jail right and many did right just coming out of slavery uh so uh just because something is criminalized as well doesn't necessarily mean it's just right right mm-hmm. all right Okay, finally, if you could give us uh, an application then as an individual believer or for the church, how can we apply um, the best of uh, womanist thought? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would encourage, well, let me, let me, well, let me think from the, uh, go from the perspective of white students who do take my womanist classes or take my New and tech, uh, Testament classes. And what uh, uh, those who have taken them have said to me, and especially more recently, is that they wish they had been able to, well, with this young lady, speaking of her roommate, sharing with her roommate what she's learning, learned in her New Testament class, she said, I wish that when I was in seminary, she wished that she was in seminary, that she had been able to privilege justice, right? Their own injustice line. And my students, when we privilege justice to interpret text, if you're a white student, you know, you have injustices that you incur. Right? I have a student who had been, you know, really uh, violated within his family and treated, you know, just horribly. And he talked about the violence uh, read his paper, particular paper, which I'm using, written by a white male, which I'm using, as I don't know if I had said this because I'm using this paper or not as one sleep. But anyway, I'm using his paper uh, as an example, as a sample paper, because he did quite well reading his story as a white male through the injustice of violence against a man, which he mm-hmm. has experienced in reading a biblical text, right? Which is healing the people, right? When I first started teaching, I wasn't teaching this way. I wasn't writing this way. But I had students uh, when I lived in, worked in the Detroit area, uh, um, area who came to uh, seminary for healing, right? They came because they had a child who was murdered or they had a son. And I'm talking about not just uh, last year. I mean, sometimes it was nine years previous, but they, you know, they were hoping to find uh, some kind of healing uh, in the process. And then when they did, you know, you didn't see them anymore, uh, which is, you know, I guess that's good. 
but they weren't finding it in the church, right? And so um, everybody, right? I think for anybody, any human being who experiences, and I think we we all can, especially uh, experience injustice, whether, whether it's through our families or some other ways, violence out in this life and world, um, deserves the um, ability to privilege that because God cares about our lives rather than privileging what went on in an ancient text and applying it to their lives. I think it's better to allow people to be in conversation with an ancient text uh, rather than imposing an ancient text upon their lives, Hmm. our lives. And that that works, you know, across uh, people find that life giving uh, across race and gender and so forth. All righty. All right. Well, you've given us a lot to think about for sure. So um, I'm Dennis Messler. You've been listening to The Charge. We've been with uh, Dr. Mitzi Smith looking at womanist thought. And so she's the author of Womanist Sass and Talk Back, Social Injustice, Justice, Intersectionality, and Biblical Interpretation, and the editor and contributor to uh, I Found God in Me, a womanist biblical hermeneutics reader. Um, the links are below. Check them out. So, Dr. Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. All right. Peace to everyone.